to the City Church Podcast. We hope that you will be abundantly blessed by this message. If you would like to find out more about the city, please log on to our website, www.thecity.sg. We're in week four of our series, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, and it's our hope that uh, you're indeed more emotionally healthy today. Um, if not, you know, we'll get there someday. But, uh, you know, the next three uh, sermons, I endeavor to get a bit more practical. I think we've covered a lot of ground the first three weeks, but uh, these few weeks, will, I endeavor to be a bit more practical, give us a bit of tools on how we can become an emotionally healthy community, an emotionally healthy people, be all around fun people to be around. All right? Um, you know, I, I, I've recently uh, read a book, and uh, it's become one of my favorite books. You know, I chanced upon it uh, at random, and I found this book, and uh, this book has given me so much life. Of course, you know, the Bible gives me life, and that book comes in a close second. But uh, it's a book called uh, The Subversive Sabbath. The Subversive Sabbath. And uh, I've been doing a lot of reading about the Sabbath and how to practice it how to incorporate uh, a Sabbath day into my week. I do Sabbaths on Monday. And so you know, if you email me, text me, unless your surname is Tan and you're dying, I probably won't reply you. I'm so sorry. Um, still love you though, but I love you from Tuesday to Sunday. And Monday, Monday I love, I love me. <laughs> and Amy and Jesus and Ayala, you get the point. But Subversive Sabbath, and this book has been so, so interesting, so awesome. And, uh, you know, if you're at all interested in this concept of Sabbath, practicing it, I highly, highly, highly recommend this book. But I've grown to love the word subversive, subversive. And subversive, some synonyms of the word subversive would be disruptive, troublemaking, agitational, and this is my favorite, rebel rousing. Rebel rousing. And I thought to myself, man, this word fits so well in my bio Andre Tan is a rebel-rousing rascal leader, and, and I love the word rebel-rousing, and it's so awesome, subversive. Now, this is what I believe. I believe as believers, Christians, people who are of another kingdom, we are to be subversive in nature. I believe that because we have Jesus, His Holy Spirit in us, we are immersed in the Word of God, there has to be something intrinsic in the Christian community that makes the world go, hey, I, I want that. Hey, I need that. Hey, I admire that. There's something distinct and different about you guys. And we need that. We want that. Subversive. You know, I, I, I think of this story. Um, you know, I was in church uh, in the US and there's this uh, uh, testimony of a man uh, who came into church one Sunday and he was a homeless man. Uh, he was uh, a druggie, uh, was always taking drugs and uh, he got, came to church and he got saved. And uh, he went on stage and shared his testimony. And the pastor asked him like, oh, how did you come to church? Who brought you here? And he said, you know, he was sitting outside minding his own business and he saw a group of people laughing, being really happy and they were walking uh, to somewhere and he looked at them and he was like, man, they look high as a kite. I need to find out where their dealer is. I need to find out where they got their drugs. And so he just started to follow them and lo and behold, they ended up in church. They were in the church service and that's where he got saved. That's an amazing story. You know, I wonder if uh, we are a community of people that people would want to follow and come to church or, you know, do they avoid you because... Never mind. It's okay. We'll move on. <coughs> I'm also not a morning person, so we relate. But this is our goal here. Now, our goal here is to discover what, is this, what ought to be distinct, what ought to be subversive, what ought to be unique to our church community, to our church culture, that the world will go, hey, I want that. 
hey, I need that, hey, I admire that. There's this verse in John, it goes like this, they, they will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. By our love for one another, by this community, by our interactions with one another, the world would know that we belong to a different kingdom. The world would know that we are disciples of Jesus. And so, you know, it brings about this question. What is to be present in our relationships, distinct about our love for one another that causes the world to know that we belong to a different kingdom, that we are of a different value system? What is to be distinct, subversive of, about our culture that causes a longing in the hearts of people who don't know Christ? Today, I want to spend some time talking to you about authenticity and vulnerability. Authenticity and vulnerability. And I believe these two qualities are to be present in Christian culture, are to be present in Christian communities. And that that these traits are what, are what distinguishes us from other communities, are what causes the world to long for a community like ours. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you that uh, your word speaks to us today. That Lord, your word is not just a, a history textbook. It's not just a set of literature that is outdated and irrelevant. But your word speaks to us today. It's so real and so relevant to our present uh, culture, to our present circumstances, to whatever we need in life. And God, we ask that today, even as we open your scriptures, read your word, God, that indeed you will speak. Lord, we thank you that there is life found in the scriptures. And God, we ask that today would be a day where we will encounter the life of God in the reading of the scriptures. God, we thank you for this time that we get to learn, we get to hear from your word. God, give us the grace to obey. Give us the grace to listen. Give us the grace to pay attention. <laughs> in Jesus' name, amen. Just slid the last one in there. <laughs> you good? <clears throat> Probably the clearest picture of God's will and intent for humanity, the clearest picture, would be the Garden of Eden. And we know in the Garden of Eden, man communed freely with God, was unhindered. We know that God sustained and provided for man their every need. And along with that, man was given a mandate and scholars would commonly refer to this mandate as the cultural mandate. Be fruitful and multiply, rule and reign. And the clearest picture of God's will and intent for humanity, for you and me, is the Garden of Eden. Is unhindered communion with God. Is for Him to sustain and provide for you. Is for us to carry within us a sense of mission and purpose in the world we live in. And I want, you, I want to read to you a line of scripture. And this is at the end of the creation account in Genesis chapter 2. In this passage, it really sums up what Eden is like. And so you have Genesis 1, the creation story. It bleeds into Genesis chapter 2. Good, 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 good. Very good. Awesome, awesome stuff. Man was created. Whoa, man was created. And divine purpose, mission, mandate was given to man. And in Genesis chapter 2, okay, at the end of the creation narrative, it crescendos in this final verse in Genesis chapter 2, verse 25. And it goes like this. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. 
This is the last verse in Genesis chapter 2. If you can picture me, creation, Andromeda, Milky Way, the planets, creation, man and women, God's pinnacle of goodness, the, the good thing that He created. Very good. Divine purpose mandate given to man. And then crescendos in this verse. And the man and his wife were both naked and unashamed. Naked and unashamed. I want to talk to you today about getting naked. No, it's not, it's not my sermon title. I'm not edgy like that. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a youth pastor thing. But I give very mainstream sermon titles, you know. <laughs> naked and unashamed. You know, uh, I remember the first time I went for a massage, you know, and uh, I was a young boy and I went into the, the massage place and uh, the masseuse said to me, uh, undress to the level of your comfort. <laughs> and so uh, at a point in time, I was uh, wearing, I, I remember I had a jacket on, I had... Uh, I had like berms and I had shoes and socks and everything. So I was like, okay, I'm going to undress to the level of my comfort. So I took off my jacket, kept my shirt on, kept my berms on and kept my socks on. And I lied on the, on the thing. And so I, I lied there. And you know, I didn't know what those like towels are for and why that was like a stretchy, you know, underwear thing that was on the bed. And I was like, I don't, I don't need that. I brought my own. And so, and so... Uh, I was like, I'm going to undress to the level of my comfort. And I felt very, very comfortable in my t-shirt, my bums, and my socks. And so I, I lied on a bed, waiting for her to come in. I was young, okay, humor me. And, I, and she walked in and was like, ah, oh, you still have your clothes on. I was like, do I, should I not have my clothes on? And she's like, okay, uh, maybe you take off your shirt, your socks, and your bums, and you leave underwear on. And so, you know, I undressed, but not to the level of my comfort, to my discomfort. And so, and so I, I lied on bed. And then she was like massaging me. And it's like, oh my gosh, you're so tense. You're so tense. And it seemed as though like I went for like a two-hour workout before, but I was tense because, you know, I was naked and very ashamed. And so, um, I was tense. You know, I was like, ah. And since then, you know, I, I've been for a couple of massages and uh, they haven't gone well. And so, you know, maybe I'm just called and meant to live in this tension of being clothed and muscly tense. Um, <laughs> If you read Genesis chapter 2, verse 25, and the man and his wife were both naked and unashamed, and they were not ashamed. It's interesting because if you read this text in this original script in the Hebrew, that word naked is actually the word aramin. Everybody say aramin real quick. Aramin. Aramin. Sound smarter? Yeah? Okay, good. This is a smart sermon. Aramin. And aramin, okay, if you look up uh, its definition, it means this it means to be fully opened, disclosed reviewed or to be laid bare, to be fully open, disclosed, reviewed or to be laid bare. If you look at it at its base definition, you realize that it's talking less about Adam and Eve's physicality, their physical nakedness, but rather of their relational dynamic, their relational dynamic between each other and God. They were fully open, disclosed, reviewed, nothing hidden, nothing hidden. And this, I would like to propose to you, is what God intends for humanity. To be naked and unashamed. To be aramin, fully disclosed, revealed, open, nothing hidden, and unashamed. To be human as God intended for us to be, is to be aramin. Vulnerable, known, and accepted. But catch this, if you read further in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, we know that there was a new character that was introduced in the narrative of scripture. The Genesis writer introduces a new character into the Christian story, Satan. Let's have that scripture up. 
It says this about Satan, the serpent. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And this, the Genesis writer proposes that the nature of the serpent, the nature of Satan, was that he was a crafty little thing. Crafty, crafty person. After showing us what human nature was, Aramin, as God intended for it to be, the Genesis writer goes on to describe the nature of Satan. Crafty, shrewd. And it's interesting, and I want us to note this. If you read this in the, in the Hebrew as well, the word crafty is actually the word aram. Aram. Let's have that slide up. Aramin and Aram. Notice the poetry. Notice the, the, the similarity in those two words. Now, I read a, a commentary recently, and uh, the commentary wrote that it is puns like this that the, that the writers of the Bible absolutely love. They love puns. They love like wordplays. They love stuff like that. And so, if you are a pun person, you know, pun away. Aram, okay? If you read into it, it is the complete opposite of what Aramin is. It means to be closed, to be hidden, to not be fully honest, and to hold something back. Let's see what the Genesis writer is trying to communicate us. Humanity was created by God to be open, honest, disclosed, vulnerable, exposed. But the devil, his nature was to be crafty, shrewd, hidden, dishonest, and closed off. Aramin and Aram. And we all know that Adam and Eve, you know, if you are familiar with the story of scripture, they gave into Satan's temptation, and in doing so, they aligned themselves with a new nature. And we commonly understand this nature and know this nature to be the sin nature. The sin nature. And there was something that was contradictory to the way they were created. It was contradictory. And notice this was the, was the first thing they did after they sinned was that they hid from God. They hid from God. My suggestion to you is that after the fall of man, man's nature moved from Aramim to Aram. That innate in human beings is a desire to want to hide, to want to be closed off, to want to be hidden, to want to hold things back. And that perpetuated this whole thing with a need for self-preservation. If you read further down in Scripture, you know that Adam basically threw Eve under the bus. It's like, it's not me, it's her. Self-preservation, the need to hide, the need to save oneself, the need to be dishonest and closed off, shrewd. Because of this sinful nature that's rooted and built on the idea of self-preservation, that idea always leads us to a fear that drives us into hiding instead of vulnerability and openness. And this, I'd like to suggest you, to you, is the twisted part of the whole thing. The very form of community that you were designed for has now become the community that you fear more than anything. The very kind of community that you were designed for, that you long for, vulnerability, openness, disclosure, exposure, authenticity has now become the very community that you are the least comfortable in. What we long for is now at the same time the very thing that we fear. And that's exactly the enemy's plan, to convince us that if we are truly honest, open and vulnerable, no one would really love us. Not people, not even God. So we put up facades, pretenses, act if everything 
as if everything is okay. Curate our lives like museum art pieces so that people would like and accept us. But deep down, we grow dissatisfied, malnourished on a soul level. Why? Because we know that the kind of love and acceptance and popularity that we're experiencing is at best built on lies and half-truths. And deep down, we are plagued with the question, would people still love me if they really knew the truth about me? Would people still love me if they saw me for who I really am? And my suggestion to you today is that that question, though you ignore it, though you suppress it, though you put it aside, that question begs to be answered. That question longs to be answered because innate in every human being is a desire to know God and to be known by God, by people, and to be loved for who they really are. Today I want to speak to you on the subject, emotionally healthy spirituality, the courage to be honest. The courage to be honest. Should have gone with the naked one, because the naked one had more punch. I'm learning, I'm growing. Thank you, mentor. The courage to be honest. <laughs> the courage to be honest. Are you still with me? Yes? Are you following me? Yep. 2007, awesome year, will be regarded as a year in history that we commonly refer to as the start of the digital age. Steve Jobs, good man, paved the way by launching the iPhone in 2007. If you don't know and you're uninformed, we are an apostolic church. Apple Watch, Apple Phone, Apple iPad, Apple Underwear, you know. And <laughs> he launched the iPhone and, you know, paved the way for the awesomeness that we live in now. It was also the year of the Kindle. And uh, when Facebook went from a so college social networking site into a global phenomenon, Twitter went from a small micro-blogging site in 2007. It had about 400,000 tweets. Per quarter, this grew to 100 million in the quarter of 2008. We are by far the most connected generation ever with regards to transportation, information, and social capabilities. We live in the most technologically connected age in the history of civilization. However, though we are supposedly more connected than we have ever been before, research shows that we are in fact more disconnected socially than we have ever been in decades. Rates of loneliness have doubled since the 1980s. In an age where ATMs have replaced bank tellers, when supermarkets have self-checkouts, and when even your university degree can be obtained without ever interacting with a real-life academic expert, it is now entirely possible to move through your whole life without connecting or interacting with anyone at all. This is the age that we live in. This is our current cultural climate. This connection or loneliness as a result of digital advancement is becoming such a problem that is referred to as a loneliness epidemic. Notice the word epidemic, loneliness epidemic in most parts of the world. One psychologist suggested that even with advances in connectivity, we are perhaps the loneliest generation that has ever existed. Why? Because even though we are well connected, be it through our phones, social media platforms, modes of transportation, blah, 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 we are still fundamentally disconnected on a soul and a heart level. To put it simply, we are similarly connected, yet unknown, yet intimately unknown. We are connected through various means, platforms, but we are still, as a generation, intimately unknown, pining and longing for Aramin, 
pining and longing for what it was like in Eden. Let's look at uh, Matthew chapter 26. Are you still with me? Yep. yep. Now, I quote this scripture every week and, uh, you know, eh, don't have a... No, don't have a... Matthew 26, no? Oh, no. I'm so sorry. If you have a Bible, turn to Matthew 26, chapter 26. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 26. You have it? What does it say? Ah, Matthew 11. I'm so sorry. It's Matthew 11. Sorry, I got the address wrong. <clears throat> I got the address wrong. <clears throat> sorry, sorry. Mistake. Grace, Ken, authenticity. Okay. It was a test. Matthew chapter 11. And I quote this uh, passage you know, in like, my last three sermons. And I'm so in love with this passage of scripture because it so reveals to us the humanity of Jesus that he had emotions. Jesus felt the full spectrum of human emotions. And that gives us a license to feel as well because our Messiah did. And he had to work through some of the toughest emotions. Let's read Matthew chapter 11. It says this, Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and distressed. Then he said to them, notice this, he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. Next slide. And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Let's flip back to the last slide in Matthew chapter 11. It says this, Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. Notice Jesus' value for community. He is the Messiah, all-powerful, almighty. And yet, in his point of weakness, he still modeled humanity and he said, I need friends, I need company, I need people to be here with me. The, the wrong reference? Matthew 26. I had it right all along. Come on, man. Matthew 26. Thank you. Thank you for the correction. Thank you. Thank you. It's way what? It's way, way too early for betrayal. Betrayal occurs before. Yeah, man. That's true. But, yes. Come back to me. Come back to me, people. Jesus modeled his need for community, but also honesty, authenticity, and vulnerability. Catch this. He said to his disciples, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. What's Jesus on the planet for? To give his life, to die for our sins, go to the cross, and then, ta-da, we'll all be saved. But notice is the Messiah, man on a mission, the greatest mission that ever existed. He said to his disciples, people who were dependent on him, people who are looking to him for direction, for faith, for hope, for courage, and he said to them, oh my gosh, my soul is grieved to the point of death. Imagine how encouraging it would be for the disciples. Yeah, imagine being placed in a position where you have to console the Messiah, the most powerful being in all of existence. Like, yeah, man. Well, um, I'm going to fall asleep. <laughs> Maybe that's why they, they, went asleep. they like, pretend to sleep because they didn't want to have conversation. Jesus modeled authenticity, vulnerability, and honesty. And this authenticity was even uh, 
present in the early church. Let's look at Acts chapter 2, verse 44. Constance uh, referenced this uh, earlier. It says this about the early church. It says, Now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. And this was supposed to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. It says this, They were all together and they shared their possessions and they gave to anyone who had need. How do you give to a person in need? The person first has to first and foremost profess a need, right? I read a book once on, uh, on how Jews handle money, and there was this line that, that still provokes me today. It says this in the book, To the Jew, poverty and death are the same thing, because in both are the absence of options. To the Jew, poverty and death are essentially the same thing, because in both are the absence of options. To the Jews, having need, being poor, was either an indictment against one's ability to steward resources or is a direct result of being cursed by God. To the Jews, having need, much less professing one's need, was an immensely shameful thing. Yet one of the immediate fruits of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in Acts 2 was the sharing of need. Aramim, naked and unashamed, vulnerability, authenticity. This was probably the most prevalent characteristic, I believe, of the New Testament church. The New Testament church was Aramim. So much so that Paul in his writings gives us practical ways that we can be Aramim. Let's look at this uh, scripture in Ephesians chapter 4. It says this, Put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. I'd like to suggest to you that one of the deceitful desires is Aram. Is that compulsive, insatiable need to hide to be closed off and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. It says this, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one another. To be Aramim, let us put off falsehood, put away falsehood. Let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. If you read into this text, you know that the word truth there is not referencing theological or doctrinal truth, but it simply means unconcealed. Share truth. Reveal things. Speak openly about your struggles, your mistakes, your hurt, your pain, your disappointment. And Paul would also write in a similar vein to the Romans. He says this in Romans 12 verse 9. It says this, let love be without hypocrisy. Let love be without hypocrisy. The word hypocrisy in this Greek is really unique. It's used to directly refer to actors in that day. And this was uh, how the Greeks would, would act uh, in plays in that day. When they were acting, the actor would play multiple characters in the play. They had like an actor deficiency and so one actor had to like play multiple characters. And how they did that was in the play they were wear different masks, and change it over time. I think we have a similar one in Chinese culture where... Is it? No? Okay, I might be mistaken. It shows what I know. But um, they would wear different masks at different points of the play. They would constantly be changing masks in the middle of play, and typically the audience would never see the actual face of the actor all through the play, even after the play. He would have a mask on all the time. And I believe Paul 
knowing that he would be writing to an audience who was familiar with Greek theatre, especially on purpose use that very word. And this is what he was trying to say. This is what love is to not look like. Love is to be without hypocrisy. Love is to not look like an act. No masks to hide behind, no pretense. Love is to occur without any hiddenness. Love is to be with nothing hidden. But the truth of, us is, truth of the matter is this. Most of us live our lives with masks on. And some of us have gotten pretty good at it, admittedly. We switch masks in different environments that we are part of. When we go to work, we have like a work mode, you know. Not like the very loud, boisterous person goes to work and suddenly he's all poised and proper. Like, <laughs> Hello, how are you? Shakes your hand in public and... Why are you all laughing? It's not as if I was talking about a specific person, but anyway. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to do it. But, but we all do that, yeah? You all laugh, but you all do that, right? Who you are here is often very different from who you are at work, right? Who you are here is also very often who you are at home. You put masks, you show up with facades, with pretense to try and get popularity, notoriety, to try and thrive in these environments. We put on facades, pretense. We do it all the time and we've gotten really good at it as a culture. But the point is this, love is to be without hypocrisy, nothing hidden. And in many ways, love, interestingly, is proven not just in the good, but I believe more so in the bad and the ugly. When you get married, some of you for the first time in your lives would see your loved one without any makeup on. Amy is great. When I dated Amy, Amy didn't wear makeup. So, you know, I was smitten and blown away by without makeup, Amy. It's true, right? It's true. Yeah. You love me when I was fatter also. So, you know. True love. True love. The good, the bad, and the ugly. Um... Well, I mean, since on that note, Amy and I have been married for uh, a year plus now. And, you know, I can say, you know, with honesty, and I hope you agree, that I love you more than I ever did before. Yeah? Okay. Yeah. Good. We're on the same page. Uh, I love her more than I, I ever did before. To be honest, marriage is so fun. We, we get to do stuff together. She cooks for me. I cook for her, you know. She irons the clothes for me. I wash the toilets. It's, it's, it's great. It's great. We're loving, we're loving it. Yeah? So fun. So fun. Um, but you, you know that when you get married, you, know, you, you experience all these good things, the good stuff, but you also see the bad and the ugly, right? You never knew a person had certain habits. You're like, oh my gosh, you live life like that? Interesting. Uh, you never knew a person had certain sleeping patterns. You're like, oh my gosh, you sleep like that? Interesting. Uh, you never knew a person will wake up like that in the morning. Oh my gosh, you wake up like that? You look like that? Ah, interesting. And, uh, and you see a lot of interesting things, right? Um, but I can say I love her more than I ever did before because, and this might sound a bit off, but just, you know, track me for a while, I had more stuff to overcome, more stuff to get past in my love for her. In my love for her. If love is just all about the good stuff, then that's a very weak, unproven love. But love is proven, tested, refined. And I would like to suggest to you, grows in the face of obstacles, disappointments, the good, the bad, the ugly. 
Love is just not just evident in the highs, but love is proven when it's chosen in spite of the bad. In spite of the bad. And that's the kind of love we want prevalent in our community. That's the kind of love I believe was described in John. It says that they will know that you're my disciples by your love for one another. That's the love I believe is necessary to be present in order for us to be a community of Aramid where nothing is hidden. In closing, I want to touch on three areas of truth sharing, what we read early in Ephesians, that we should seriously explore in hopes of becoming the community that models true, authentic love for one another. I want to get super practical today. And this is my belief. I believe that if we get some of these practices right, it will really transform our community. But not just in doing so, I believe that when we get these practices right, we will experience a new level of freedom. You know, these are just not a set of teachings. You know, if the goal here is for me to get through six weeks of these and then I prepackage it into a DVD that you might you know, look, at, look up like once in three years, then honestly, my job has failed. What we're trying to do here with these set of teachings is to establish a new culture in our church, a new norm, a culture of emotional health where we don't just talk about the spiritual stuff. These are important, but we also understand that there is a correlation to our spiritual health with our emotional health. That we are only as spiritually healthy as we are emotionally healthy. I'd like to suggest to you that you are, as, you are only as spiritually healthy as you are relationally healthy. And I'd like to go over some things that I think we can do better growing as a faith community. And these are not easy, but we'll get there together. First one, I think we should learn how to practice brave, respectful confrontation. Practice respectful confrontation. You know, it's a very scary word, confrontation, but just track me for a bit. In the Lord's Prayer, we remember the line that goes, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Yet this forgiveness and our need for food is placed on the same level. Jesus takes forgiveness really, really seriously. He forgives murderers and thieves and adulterers and narcissists and he asks his followers to do the same. Hanging on the cross, stripped, naked, bleeding and dying, Jesus looks at the Romans executing him and says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they are doing. Shocking, provocative grace. But with that, Jesus asks us to turn around and show others the same grace. People who hurt us, wound us, abuse us, persecute us, betray us. There are no loopholes, no ways to get around it. Jesus calls his followers to forgive people who hurt, wound, and betray us. Period. Period. Unforgiveness leads to bitterness. Bitterness leads to anger, hurt, shame. Sounds very Star Wars-y. Memories start to haunt you, control you, and take over your soul like an ominous dark cloud suffocating the light. That's what bitterness does. I've heard it said, forgiveness is setting someone free and then realizing that that somebody is you. And one of the reasons I believe that we, as a community, as people, are still bound and trapped in unforgiveness is because we either fear confrontation or lack the necessary skill set to practice confrontation. When we hear the word confrontation, a lot of us probably think of a scenario involving high levels of anxiety and tension, people communicating aggressively, passively or passive-aggressively, fight, flight or freeze behaviours, some kind of battle, power struggle, fist fights, and 
a winner and a loser. In other words, for many of us, confrontation equals conflict. And conflict is uncomfortable, scary, and even painful. Except for those personalities who seem to not just only tolerate conflict, but actually enjoy it. Some of you. Typically, any resolution achieved through conflict-style confrontation is temporary. Is temporary. Now I have a video, and uh, it's two minutes, so just humor me, but I have a video that shows how we typically do confrontation uh, in most cultures. Can I have my video up? Beautiful, thanks. Excuse me. I know you didn't think anyone would catch you, but you just slammed your door into my car. The least you can do is say you're sorry, lady. I don't have to take that tone. It's not like I'm hurting your resale value. I'm sorry. See? Like that. to suggest to you that that's not the way to do confrontation. Um, I think that's where the phrase that escalated quickly began. But, uh, <laughs> I like that. Alright, um, to get practical, I'd like to give us some guidelines on how to confront a person about an offence. And uh, this is my guideline. First of all, I think we should learn to be respectful. Let's be real, when there's an issue to be confronted in a relationship, whether it's a spouse, child, co-worker, or even leader, there are most likely going to be some painful emotions involved. Often people allow these painful emotions to drive them towards behavior that further exacerbates the issue, that is hurting the connection. 
As a general rule, no disrespect, no retaliation, no isolation, etc. No yelling, slamming of tables, throwing things, rude facial expressions that express disagreement. Those are often unhelpful. A confrontation involves two powerful people. It should be a conversation and not a berating session. Next one is to be specific and address the issue at hand. Be, be specific and address the issue at hand. Stay focused on dealing with the specific incident of behavior. In unhealthy relationships where issues go unconfronted or unresolved, there is a temptation for the speaker to bring up the whole history, the whole catalog of past hurts and past events when a confrontation finally happens, which betrays the bigger problems at hand. Next one is to seek to be understood and to understand. And this is a rule that me and Amy have adopted from a book that we read. As a general rule, it is my responsibility to help the other party understand my frustration. And if I do not do so in a clear manner, it is not the other party's responsibility to handle my emotions. Does that make sense? Until I explicitly communicate my frustration, my emotions, it is not the other party's responsibility to handle. Which means that we can't go like, I thought you would know what. You should know by now. These kind of words should not be in your confrontation vocabulary. Danny Silk, he teaches the iMessage method. And I love this method for several reasons, the name included. iMessage, it goes this, I feel blank. When blank happens, I need to feel blank in this relationship. I know very elementary, it sounds like very primary school, but this has been a tool that has helped me in a lot of ways. And the last uh, step on learning how to confront a person is this, restoration is the goal. This is, this is as opposed to retaliation, revenge, inflicting shame, guilt, etc. The goal of any good confrontation is to restore confidence, trust, and connection in the relationship. And everybody say, Amen. Now, this sounds very good and nice. But the question is, what if you are the perpetrator? What if you are the person who has done something offensive? What if you have done something that demands an apology? I'd like to share with you some do's and don'ts in a good apology. Can we have the next slide up? Be specific. Say, I am sorry for blank. It doesn't, when you apologize, you shouldn't go, sorry, law. Sorry, I say sorry, idiot. No, you sit there and you apologize for what you say. Is this helping? We're trying to get practical. We're trying to establish a new culture. Hence, we're getting very methodological. Don't be quick to move on. That's the next step. Don't be quick to move on. Don't rush into the, I'm so sorry. And get on your knees and back. Like, I say sorry, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. Do not be too quick to move on because when you do that, you put pressure on the person whom you hurt and now that person has to play the role of comforting you because you are an emotional wreck and mess. You don't get to do that. You messed up. Sit there and feel the gravity of the pain that you've caused and sit through processing the pain with the other party. You don't get to go like, I'm so sorry. You don't get to weep and cry. You done messed up. <laughs> sit there. Next step, focus on your part of the problem, not theirs. Pretty self-explanatory, but you know, sometimes you know, we do this, which brings us to the next step. Don't put a but at the end. Oftentimes, you want to justify what you did, and so you apologize, you go through your long apologies, but uh, because uh, you were like that, therefore, it created debt. You want to justify with it, but you only make the person feel worse. Usually, there's two sides, but in a good apology, you put a period, not a but. And when you put a butt, you are being a butt. Okay. <laughs> this will help you remember. 
And then the last one is this, don't make it about the other person's feelings. Oh, I'm so sorry you felt that way. I'm so sorry that was your perspective. I'm so sorry you're so sensitive. These things are not an apology. These are passive-aggressive acts of retaliation. <laughs> How many of you have done this before? Yes? Yeah? yeah. Me all the time. <laughs> always. Yeah, I always do this. Yeah. But, yes, I'm getting better. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, oh, man, man, we are... So running out of time. But um, the next thing I believe uh, will help us uh, become a more authentic uh, Aramean community is for us to learn how to confess our sins to one another. Confess our sins to one another. For many people, the term confession conjures images of a dark wooden booth and whispering one sin to a priest through a screen. Now, we don't do that here. Some of you, when you meet me for coffee, that's what you think the interaction is going to be like. And I often disappoint. And... Uh, However, confession is really just an expression of remorse about the past and hope for the future, the process of telling our story. The process of telling our story. King David is a well-known man in the Bible. His life is a story of great exploits and tragic failures. He makes some really big blunders towards the end of his life. Adultery, murder, failure. And in the end, he repents, though not right away. At first, he hides, lies, and covers up his sin. In Psalm 32, he speaks of his un confessed sins. says this, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was set as in the heat of summer. Sailor. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Sailor. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you while you may be found. says this, In the midst of his unconfessed sins, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. Really graphic language. It's interesting because doctors say that achy bones are often an early sign of depression. There's this story of a high-profile pastor, and we're all familiar with the story, who admitted to lying about his two-year struggle with terminal cancer in order to hide a long-term obsession with pornography. He hid the truth from his wife and family, sending fake emails about his condition from non-existent medical practitioners while his addition led to physical conditions that mimicked the symptoms of cancer. He was so bound in shame that he eventually manifested in physical conditions that mimicked the lies that he was telling. Here's my, my, what, what I'd like to suggest to you. The human body is not designed to bear the weight of unconfessed sin. We were not designed to bear the weight of unconfessed sin. I think of the story of Li Fuyan, who had a blade found in his skull. Let's have the picture up. He had a blade. That blade was found in his skull. Now, this is the story. It says that he had a stabbing headache that ended when a doctor found a rusty four-inch knife blade that had been lodged in his skull for four years. True story. Li Fu Yan said a robber had stabbed him on the right side of his jaw. For years, he had suffered severe headaches and had trouble breathing. I wonder. But didn't know it was because of a knife blade that was stuck inside his head. And they found it and then he stopped having headaches. Right, go figure. Here's my point. We weren't made, the human body, we weren't made to live with foreign objects in our body. You know, you have something stuck in your body, it will affect your bodily functions. Likewise, our soul, sin, shame, guilt are foreign bodies, foreign objects to our soul. And until we rid ourselves of them, 
we live in perpetual searing pain that inevitably brings about a disconnection to our sense of mission, purpose, people, and God. That's why James chapter 5, verse 16, it says this, Therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. It is so beautiful that God requires for us to be in community, but not just that, to participate in community in order to be healed and whole. The English word for fellowship has become anemic and flat, but the Greek word is kononia, which means deep, raw, authentic relationships with depth and substance and honesty. We have something else that no, we have something here that nobody else has. People from all walks of life. Jews and Gentiles, masters and slaves, male and female, hipsters and athletes, fashionistas and farmers, and of course, scholars and NSKs. We are all bound together around Jesus who is the center. He built us to do life together, not in isolation. Catch this, the phrase, a personal relationship with Jesus, does not occur anywhere in the scripture. A personal relationship with Jesus, it does not occur anywhere in the scripture. Am I saying you can't have a one-on-one dialogue with Jesus? I'm not saying that. But the emphasis of our life in Christ has so veered towards it being an isolated event when actually life in Christ, as commanded in the scriptures, involves community, involves participation, involves authenticity and vulnerability. Am I preaching the gospel? (coughs) Thank you. Jesus saved us to reconcile us to God, but also to people. To God and to people. If you're struggling with a sin, you need to confess it. Not just to God, but to a brother and get help. Get help. You're making sense? Okay, I'm moving past quickly, but this is the last thing that we should learn to do better in being a community that's built around Aramim. And it's this. Learning to make our needs and pain known. Our needs and pain known. I have a couple of scriptures I like to bring up. Paul, in writing to a church in Galatia about life together, says, Carry once one another's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. But three verses down, he says this, Each one should carry his own load. Now, was Paul, you know, schizophrenic? Was Paul, you know, maybe he paused and forget what he wrote earlier, and then he rewrote it. He's like, oh no, should they carry it? Should we not carry it? What should we do? But if you pay close attention to the language, Paul is not contradicting himself. The word burdens in Greek is the word barrels, which means a seriously heavy weight. But the word load in the next scripture is the word portion, which can be translated as cargo. With that in mind, the meaning is clear. All of us have baggage. Some cargo we lug around. Sometimes we just need to buck up and carry our own load. Come on. We don't need to walk around vomiting our problems and issues on the entire church and dragging people down with us. However, sometimes we carry burdens that are far too heavy for us to carry on our own. That's where community comes in. When you face struggles and sins and tragedy, grief and loss and disappointment and unemployment and fear, you need your brothers and sisters to walk with you at your side, helping you shoulder the load, bear the weight, and keep your head above the water. C.S. Lewis famously said, Friendship is born at the moment when one man says to another, What? You too? I thought that. No one but myself. She has always said that. Love it. Without authenticity, these moments are impossible. Authenticity makes way for compassion by expressing trust and allowing us to connect with others over shared experiences. So the question I would like to pose to us is this. What kind of community do you want to be a part of? Do you want to see? I want 
us to be a place, a church, where we freely celebrate each other's successes. We rejoice over testimonies, over good news, promotions, and all the good stuff, healings. But I also want us to be a community where we pause and stop for the broken. We don't glance past it. We don't avoid it and shun people in their pain. We grieve together. We mourn together. We choose to sit. And it's not enough for us to encourage people to share. We need to endeavor to become a community that is a safe place for people to share. And there are certain things that we should do to endeavor to becoming a safe place. And these are things that we should not do. As a last set of things I'm going to share with you as we close. Inappropriate use of humor. Pretty self-explanatory. Don't laugh at people when they share their pain. You know, oh my gosh, I'm so sad. Ha ha, you're sad. Don't do that. Some people are really, honestly, embarrassed by deep honesty. And they attempt to relieve their embarrassment by using a little humor to create distance. We all are guilty of that. You know, we laugh it off. Or they may mock the person who is disclosing. When this happens, you see the mask go back on immediately. Next thing that we shouldn't do. Move past the issue quickly. It may look like changing topics or glancing past the issue or something that's more common in churches. I'll keep you in prayer and then you walk away. Now, when I was going through a really rough patch, the only time I engaged in prayer was when someone prayed for me. Not, and you know, we, we all go through tough times and it's difficult to do certain things. But in my grief, in my mourning, I couldn't find myself praying alone. And I needed someone with me to pray for me. And when you say, I'm going to keep you in prayer, you are missing an opportunity to help that individual engage in prayer. And the truth of the matter is, most of, most of the time we say we keep in prayer, but we actually never do it. There's no time better than now. right? And so let's be a community that actually prays for people in the moment. Judgmental statements or premature advice. This is like Andre Tan. Premature advice. It may look like trying to offer solutions to fix it before validating the vulnerability it took to share. I do this all the time. It may look like going, hey, it's not such a big deal. Small, small thing. Kachik, kachik. It's a small matter. You can get over it. You are overcomer in Christ Jesus. Part of being uniquely created would mean that we are also uniquely limited. What might come as easy for you might not be the same for the other person. And the last one is this. Violating a confidence. When you tell someone something in confidence, you are entrusting to them a little piece of your heart. It takes great verbal discipline to honor this, and some people simply don't have the character to do it. In Bonhoeffer's word, he says this, a trustworthy friend keeps the secret of a confession as God keeps it. And sometimes you go, man, it's so juicy. Man, I need to tell someone else. Man, you know, maybe you know, people will find this fun, or people will find this like, shocking as well. You know, Jesus is so passionate about unity in the church, about authenticity and vulnerability, that any kind of gossip or slander is by its nature anti-Christ. Now, that's a load of content. But I'd like to end off with a final quote on vulnerability. Let's read this quote together. It says this, Vulnerability is taking the risk to expose yourself emotionally. It feels uncertain but there's no other path to the most meaningful experiences you will ever have. We were created for the purpose of connection to God and others, and vulnerability is the requirement for achieving that purpose. Next slide. Vulnerability is the state in which we all enter the world. From the very first moments you were vulnerable and how well you connect, you connected to others around you, 
while you were that vulnerable, determined how you felt about yourself then and continues to define your sense of self today. Our very identity is dependent on our relationship with those who care for us. Because we are fundamentally relational beings, we are fundamentally vulnerable. For you to be you, you need God and others. Let that sing in. For you to be you, you need God and others. It's my hope that we become a community of the authentic, the honest, the courageous, and by extension, a place of hope, healing, and health. My hope is that as a community, we will not just be known as a community of the redeemed, but we will be known as a community of the real and the reading.